Acts chapter 6 is where we're going to be today, and uh, as we find our place there, I just want to kind of throw a term out, the term of deacon. Uh, When you hear that term and you hear that title, what comes to mind? Uh, Maybe you uh, think of older gentleman, Uh, he's got a garage full of tools, and because he's got a lot of tools and he's handy with those tools, he's the guy that can fix about anything, so he's the guy when you pull up on the church campus... Really, any day of the week, he's out there working on something, tinkering, fixing, uh, replacing, uh, just working around the church with his hands. Perhaps your thoughts when you hear the word deacon are of uh, a man who's good with numbers. He's got great business acumen. He's uh, a successful businessman, and so he's leading in those areas within the church. Others might picture a negative person. You've been around church long enough to know that there are sometimes some negative people in church. Sometimes it's the pastor who can be negative, but when you think of deacon, you think of that negative guy whose spiritual gift is no. You know, the guy that's always checking the pastor. It's like he's the the lone veto on decision-making within the church. And so when you think of deacon, you think of that guy. Maybe you think of a man. Some of you may think, well, it's a man or a woman. The, the truth is, is when we hear the word deacon, we have different thoughts, different ideas, because they're coming from different experiences. Well, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to begin a new sermon series. This is a three-part series on deacons. Now, I understand this morning that uh, if you're visiting with us today and you came to Red Lane, you're thinking, man, I need something for my life. I need some encouragement in this area. I need you to help me. And now you're telling me you're going to preach on deacons for three weeks. It's okay. All right. I believe the Lord's word's big enough to speak to any and every situation. But there's times in, in life of the church that we need to just do good ecclesiology. That's a fancy word for just meaning we need to speak to the church and, and roll out what the Word of God says about who the church is and how the church should operate and function. And so we're going to talk about deacons over the next three Sundays. Now, when you hear that term, as I just kind of laid out some scenarios, you got different opinions, different thoughts, and more than likely your perspective on deacons in the church has largely been exper- or affected by your experience. And experiences are good. We learn from experience. They're influential in our lives, but as believers who would seek to live a life that honors the Lord Jesus, as a church who wants to build our lives on Jesus as well, we have to do all of that on the foundation of God's Word. And so what does the Bible say about deacons? It's imperative that we know and understand what the Word says about this position within the church. And so that's why we're going to take the next three Sundays and look at this office in the local church. Here's what we're looking to do as a church. You may ask the question, why are you talking about deacons at this specific time? There's a reason for it. We are looking at restructuring and redeploying our deacon ministry. Uh, so our elders and our deacons have been discussing this for a number of months. What should, we, what should our deacons do? What should they, how should they operate? What ministry should they be a part of? How can we restructure this in a way that brings greater usefulness to the deacons? Not that they weren't useful, but how can we utilize them in a greater way to serve the church, to be a blessing to the community, and bring honor and glory to the Lord? And so we've been looking at this, discussing this for a number of months, and on Sunday the 25th, in a special called members meeting, we will lay out that full plan of what that restructuring will look like, how they will be redeployed, and as a church, we will have an opportunity to affirm that decision and move forward in this restructuring and redeployment of this 
pivotal office within the church. And so what we're going to do starting today is look at these leading servants as we've defined them in, in, in past years, uh, preached through the book of 1 Timothy in chapter or uh, in fall of 15 into the spring of 16. And when we are there in chapter 3 of that letter, we defined elders as servant leaders and deacons as leading servants. And so that's why we're using this terminology this morning. We're going to talk about these leading servants, their roles, responsibilities, and requirements. But before we go really any further, I think it would be helpful to clarify the leadership roles in the church. You know, who are the leaders? What are the leaders? What are they to do? Well, if we look at the New Testament, we see that the New Testament lays out two offices in the church. The first office would be that of elder, uh, overseer, pastor. Those are three terms. The elder term in the Greek is presbyteros. The overseer or bishop term that we would see translated in the Bible is episkopos. And then there's a, a term that's in the Greek, poimen, that would be translated pastors, the idea of shepherding, a shepherd. All three of those terms are used interchangeably to speak of the same office within the church. For instance, there are two specific passages, one in 1 Peter chapter 5, the other in Acts chapter 20, where all three of those terms are used in the same passage. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Peter says this about elders. He's instructing them to be good overseers as they pasture. Verse 1, he says, so I exhort the elders, presbyteros, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed Shepherd, poiment, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, episkopos. See, the three terms are there. So exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Acts 20, we're not going to read that text. It's uh, more verses than what I just read there. But what we see in Acts chapter 20 is Paul heading back from his third missionary journey, going back to Jerusalem. As he's traveling, he stops in a certain place, calls for the Ephesian elders to come down to them to him. And, and then there he emphasizes that the elders are to uh, oversee the, the flock of God and to pastor them well, to do well in pastoring and overseeing the flock of God. And so if we look at these two passages, what we see is the elder emphasizes who the man is, the overseer speaks of what he does, and the pastor deals with the attitude and the character of that individual holding that specific office. So that's the first office the New Testament talks about. The second office is deacon, what we're talking about over the next three Sundays. The word comes from the term diakonos. If you've been in church long enough, you've heard these terms thrown out there. These are the terms that we pastors who really can't speak Greek throw some stuff at you so you think, man, they're so smart. Look at them. They can say a couple Greek words and, and kind of mess it up just a little bit, but you guys don't know, right? Uh, that's a joke. You're supposed to laugh at that, right? I'm, I haven't said a joke in a while that I needed to prod you, but this morning I need to. So you've heard this term. You probably also know that the term is related to... Uh, to menial work. It, it speaks, speaks of a table waiter. It speaks of someone who would do menial tasks. Later, the definition as the New Testament uh, carried on, as time went on in the time of the early church, it grew to broader types of servant. It's a term that's used often in the New Testament. In fact, uh, diakonos or its variations are used approximately a hundred different times within the New Testament itself. In all of those, except for a few exceptions, it's translated service or ministry. 
If we go to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, which we just finished the book of Philippians last week, and so you would see there that Paul is addressing the church and the deacons. He's talking to, to both there. So it's, it's translated deacon in that verse, but also in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, where Paul lays out the requirements, responsibilities, and all the things there with the office of deacon. It's translated as such. So one of the first times, though, we find this term is in the book of Acts, the passage we're looking at this morning, which is chapter 6. There, as we're going to see in just a moment, as we read the passage, we're going to see that the apostles found themselves on the verge of a crisis. I'm sure many of you know the story of what's happening here. Uh, If you don't, well, what's taking place is the Hellenistic Jews were finding themselves being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And so there was a need in the congregation where these certain widows were not being given the daily ration of food, and and yet the Hebraic or Jewish, Hebrew Jewish widows were. And so this conflict, this this complaint, this issue within the church began to rise, began to gain some ground, and it rose to the level that the apostles were made privy to it. And so the apostles told the church what to do. They said, hey, You need to go select seven godly men full of the Holy Spirit and appoint them to meet the needs of these widows. So from this passage, many delineate that the seven men appointed to serve the widows were the first deacons of the church. Now, I would uh, would tend to believe that that's not necessarily the case, but what we're going to see this morning is it foreshadows what would become an office in the New Testament church. These men who are selected are serving, they're attending to the needs, but they're not an office. In fact, we don't even see this term used the rest of the book of Acts, and only two of those men of the seven are mentioned in the rest of the book of Acts, which are Stephen and Philip, and it's always in the context of evangelism. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 is preaching the gospel, there in, uh, in the city, persecution begins to break out, and he's a martyr. Philip is this uh, gospel preacher who goes down and preaches the gospel, and great things happen. Then later, in uh, the early parts of chapters 20 and 21, and somewhere in that neighborhood, Philip is an evangelist, and that's how he is identified. So we don't see this term here in this passage being used as an office, but I believe it's a foreshadowing of the office to come, and that's what we're going to look at this morning as we look at this passage you say, how do you believe that? Or why do you believe that? Well, Paul writes to, first, to Timothy in 1 Timothy, and this is about 30 years after the beginning of the church. And so what's happening in that 30 years is the church has grown exponentially. In fact, it grows exponentially day one, right? Pentecost, 3,000 are added. We're going to see in our text this morning that the church continues to grow day by day. It's multiplying, even priests coming to the faith. So the church is growing exponentially. So the need that was there in Acts chapter 6, where it just was sort of a a one-time deal, now there's an ongoing need for this office to be in place for these needs and others to be met specifically by leaders within the church. And so we see... um, deacons taking on a greater and greater role. So two offices laid out in the New Testament, elders and deacons. Both of these offices operate as pluralities, meaning there's multiple, uh, multiple elders, multiple deacons. Uh, The leadership structure of the church here at Red Lane follows the description and prescription that we're talking about here. We are a church led by a plurality, multiple elders, And we have multiple deacons serving alongside the elders to 
take care and to minister to people's needs. We also here at Red Lane have a staff team of pastors and directors who execute the ministry of the church. And so the question then would be, all right, how do these function together? We got elders and deacons and a staff team. How do these function in a way that's healthy and beneficial to the church and bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I believe Mark Deffer offers a great word picture in his book, The Deliberate Church. So if I want you to picture with me a journey. You're headed to a journey. As a church, we're on a journey together. Mark Dever would tell us that the elders set the vision for the destination. The elders are the one who are, who are the shepherds of the church saying, here's where we're supposed to be going. This is the de- destination for us as a church. This, the, the casting of the vision is for that. The staff team comes along, and because we're going someplace, we're jumping on a bus, and the staff team is driving it, driving the bus to the destination. Well, so what do the deacons do? Well, Dever would say this. He would say the deacons are the ones who put fuel in the tank. They're the ones who take care of the, 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 the little things, the, the behind-the-scene things, so that the staff team and the elders and everyone in the church can get to the destination. They fill up the tank to make sure there's fuel to get going where we are going. So today, as we examine and try to understand the office of deacon, I want us to first look at the roles of these leading servants We're going to use Acts chapter 6 as an early example of what this office would later become. So look with me there, with all of that in mind, and let's read verse 1 through 7. Now in these days, Luke says, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint about the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. And verse 7 says, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, as we seek to understand and make sense of what's going on here in Acts chapter 6, it's important to understand the backstory. All right? What's the backstory that's led us up to this point in Acts chapter 6? I mentioned earlier that there's been an exponential boom in the number of disciples, right? Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, and what was 120 to 500 or so believers there hanging out in Jerusalem waiting for the coming of the Spirit now is exponentially boomed to 3,000 plus. 3,000, it says, were added to the church. They also, the 3,000 plus, are sitting there, breaking bread together, listening to the apostles' teaching, growing in their faith. And it says, as chapter 2 ends, that people were coming into the church daily. So it continues to increase and continues to multiply and to grow, which is a great thing. Who doesn't love a growing church? That's a good place to say something. We all love a growing church. What does a growing church mean? It means lost people are getting saved and discipled and we're making a difference in a dark world 
shedding light there. That's a good thing. Well, the enemy doesn't like that, and so he's working things to, uh, out in such a way to try to hinder that. And so we get into Acts chapters 3 and 4, and we see persecution increasing there. We see John, uh, Peter and John going to the temple, and they heal a guy, and, and people were amazed by that. Well, the, the, the high priest and others didn't like it, so they arrest them, charge them to never preach in that name. They try to scare them. Well, it doesn't work. They continue to preach the gospel. They're arrested again and in chapters 4 and 5. They have a stare-down kind of match going on there. We also see along those same lines is, is the enemy begins to understand, well, I can't do anything from outside. Let's do something from inside. And you see the story in Acts chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira where they saw that certain people were getting credit, if you will, because they were being generous with the things that the Lord had given them as they served the body and served the community. And so they sold a piece of property and said, here, we're giving it all to the Lord, and yet held back some for themselves. You say, what's the big deal with that? No, it, nothing's wrong with that. But they were given the impression that they gave everything to get credit within the eyes of humanity, but with, in the reality, they were keeping much for themselves. And so the Lord killed them. I mean, how would you like that church of discipline to happen on a regular basis in the life of the church? But that's what happened there. The church continued to grow as a result of that. So we move into chapters, chapter 6, and we see another issue happening in this church. This, this issue is different. I would say this issue is even more significant as far as to the, the, the danger that it, that it played in the life of the early church. Here we find a very major complex issue growing and gaining momentum. And so Acts 6 here is a story of church conflict really handled well. Uh, seeing an issue, dealing with an issue, and doing it in such a way that brings glory to the Lord and unity to the body of Christ. So let's look closely at this passage this morning. And as we do, I want us to make four observations. I'm going to point out two roles of deacons, and then there's going to be one glorious effect that we see in verse 7 that comes from that. And full disclosure this morning, I am pulling these specific points from a really good resource on deacons. It's outlined in this passage, so I'm preaching the Bible. But I'm, I am uh, borrowing the language of these observations, roles, and the effect that we're going to see. It's from a book called Deacons, uh, How They Serve and Strengthen the Church by Matt Smith Smithers. It's always hard for me to pronounce his name. He is... Um, a guy who writes for Nine Marks Ministry. He's actually going to be planting a church right here in the Richmond area, going to launch it next spring. I've had an opportunity to meet him last month, and so looking forward to getting to know him better. So let's talk about this this morning. Four observations that we see here in verses 1 through 7. First of all, we see preaching and teaching prioritized. It's, it's important and significant that we mention this this morning. Uh, a quick reading of this passage may give the impression that the apostles were a little bit calloused, a little bit uncaring. I mean, think about it. You've got some widows who were saying, hey, we're not getting the food that we need, and, and someone else is getting it, and they're like, hey, we don't have time for that. Find someone else to do it. That may be how we read the text, but that's not how we should read the text at all. They're not calloused or uncaring. The opposite is actually true. The apostles were sensitive to the needs of the Hellenists and cared about their welfare. But at the same time, the apostles understood their primary responsibility as the apostles or elders of the church was not to do those things, but it was to preach and to pray. That's the ministry of the word. And so Smithers here offers an insightful perspective on this priority. Look what he, or listen to what he says. He says, the apostles recognize a fundamental truth 
A church whose ministers are chained to the tyranny of the urgent, which so often shows up in tangible problems, is a church removing its heart to strengthen its arm. In other words, it's a kind of slow-motion suicide. What the apostles are saying to the, to the needs of these Hellenist widows was, you're not, we're not saying you're not important. We're just saying it's not our responsibility because we've been charged with this. We're going to find some folks to meet this need because we can't be uh, mandated or we can't be managed by the urgent of the moment. The, the, the issue of the moment can't deter us from what God has called and equipped us to do. And so it's essential for a church to strive to meet the physical and tangible needs of its membership. But if those needs are not able to be met there, is a sti- there's still a church present. What do I mean by that? If these widowers had not, widows had not uh, had their needs met, would there still be a church? The answer to that question is yes. Now, it probably wouldn't be a very healthy church, but there's still a church. If the apostles had said, all right, here's a need, and so we're going to go meet this need and neglect the preaching and the praying that Christ had mandated to them, there would no longer be a church because that's what the church is built upon. You, You catch where I'm going with that? The church is built, founded, grounded in the word of God. So biblical and preaching, biblical preaching and teaching is prioritized here in how they responded to this need. The priority is laid out. And so seven deacons, seven men model for us how to prioritize the word, taking the burdens off the shoulders of the apostles or elders. There's a second observation. That is congregational involvement. We see congregational involvement here. Now, it's critical that we recognize how these seven were selected and put into service. Uh, What are we not seeing? We're not seeing the apostles say, all right, I want you to go and tell Stephen and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas, I want you to get these guys together and say, hey, go meet this need. That's not what they do. They don't unilaterally select these men. Instead, they instruct the church to be involved in the process. So what's going on here? The very first church members meeting in the New Testament is taking place. So for those of you who are Red Lane members but don't come to members meetings, here's a good precedent here in the New Testament in the book of Acts that says this is important. What we see here is congregationalism. What is congregationalism? The church involved in the decisions of the church. This is not a papal decision. This is not some sort of Presbyterian model here where it's top-down leadership. No, the apostles who are the shepherds, the leaders of the church are saying we all need to be in this decision. And so the church selects the apostles, uh, commission or ordain, and launch them into ministry. Congregationalism is highlighted. And the beauty of all this is that the congregation has final say on all matters, which is true of us. That's why when we are meeting in a couple weeks to lay out this new structure and redeployment, we're not saying as elders, this is the way it's going to be, buttercup, suck it up. I guess it's suck it up, buttercup, right? Uh, We're saying, here's what we believe we should be doing, and the church has an opportunity to affirm that. Or the flip side, unaffirm that. A third observation. We see character mandated. So the apostles did not instruct the church to pick just anyone. They laid out some characteristics, right? Basically, they're saying this. Go get your best. Gold standard servants are what we should be looking for as a church. They're to be men of good repute. In other words, they're to be respectable in character, respectable in conduct, well thought of. 
They are to be full of the Holy Spirit. That, that's speaking of maturity in their faith. That's speaking of, uh, of a life and, and examples of them following the Spirit's direction in their life. They're also to be um, full of wisdom. They were to be known for exercising practical wisdom in the problems of life. And so here we see the church selecting its best to care for its least. They didn't just say, hey, get some guys that have blood flowing through their veins and, 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 and they could pick up stuff, right? And, and they got a truck, and they got some tools. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, hey, get the men, get those who are of good repute, good reputation, follow the Spirit of God in their life, who have wisdom from heaven, and put them into service. There's a fourth observation. We see labor divided. Again, here we, rest, we need to recognize that the apostles in no way minimized the Hellenists' uh, complaint. Instead, they quickly sought to resolve the issue. The solution, though, was not to take on more duties themselves. Here's what often happens in the life of the church. A few of us do all of the work. I would say, can I get a witness? But there would be about 20% of us that say, amen to that, right? That's what happens in the life of the church. And so we see a new need, and we're like, well, we've got to meet that need. So we just take it on. Now, the apostles could, do, could have done that. They could have said, all right, here's a need, and, and we're the leaders, and so we're just going to do this. But they said, no, this is not for us to do because it's going to detract us from what is primary in our responsibility. So let's find someone else who's of good reputation, who has wisdom, who knows the Spirit of God and, and how to follow the Spirit of God, and let's empower them to do the work. So the division of labor is laid out here in this early church. And man, we need to lay out the division of labor within our churches today so that we can continue to prioritize the word and yet meet physical, tangible needs. If the pastors do all the preaching and all the ministering and all the serving, then what's going to be neglected? The preaching. Here's what I know, because I just got done leading the whole thing. Uh, we're still not done with this renovation, but um, I'm more bald today and more gray today than I was this time last year because we built a building out there. And you hopefully are hearing better preaching these days because there was a lot of months where I wrote sermons on Saturday morning because there were so many things going on during the week, I never could get to Thursday being my writing day. That's when I typically write sermons. The last few weeks this summer has been great. I walk out of the office Thursday afternoon, and man, it is, it's never done until I stand up here on Sunday morning. But for the most part, it's done. It's ready to go. And so it's free. And so, man, when we're doing other things, it detracts us from what is primary in our responsibility of building the Word of God into the people. Now, if the deacons are tasked with the preaching, then they can't do the serving, right? So we need a division of labor. Those are some observations we need to keep in mind as we talk about these two roles that we're going to look at. So role number one is that of a shock absorber. A shock absorber. Now, if you have got a four-wheel drive truck, you know what a shock absorber is. If you have a four-wheel drive truck with no shocks on it, you also know what a shock absorber needs to be for your life because it's bouncy. One of the things that we need to not overlook or miss here in Acts chapter 6 is this strategic role these seven men played in preserving congregational unity. They are a shock absorber that, that softens the reverberation of the conflict. It's easy to see how they solved the food shortage problem, but listen here, the sh food shortage is not the primary issue in the local church. 
It's the cause, but it's not the issue. What's the issue? The issue is the, the, the fracturing of unity within the body of Christ. This was a point where the early church could have split. You ever heard of a church split? Thankfully, in the life of Southern Baptists these days, I think, Steve, you may correct me here, I think we have more church plants coming from healthy church plants where we're actually launching people out to start a new church than what we've used to have where it was really just two, one congregation fighting and all of a sudden you've got two churches. That's a church split. So that could have happened here in Acts chapter 6, but because of these men launched out to be shock absorbers, they softened that reverberation so that there could still be unity there. So the deepest problem was the fracturing of unity. Well, what's the fault line here? The fault line was what it many times is today. In the Jerusalem church, there were two main groups. There were the Hebrews and the Hellenists. Who were the Hebrews? Well, they're the insiders. The Hebrews were those Jewish, Palestinian believers who grew up in Palestine, who spoke the language of Palestine. They spoke the language Jesus spoke. They spoke the language of the apostles. They were the insiders. They saw themselves as authentic, full-fledged Jewish believers right? Rights to the kingdom sort of thing, right? Card-carrying, authentic, Jesus-following Jews. The Hellenists were the outsiders. Uh, These were Jews who had immigrated to Jerusalem from other parts of the Roman Empire. They did not speak as a main language, the language of the Jews from Palestine. They spoke as a main language something else. It could have been uh, Roman languages. It could have been someone somewhere from another part of the empire. But Hebrew or Aramaic was a secondary language for them. And so they probably were in Jerusalem there for Pentecost, for that feast. The Holy Spirit came. They heard the preaching. They responded to the gospel. And as such, as new believers were brought into the church. You following with me? So now they're here. You've got two different groups of people, Hebrews and Hellenists, and they do what humans have always done. They begin to fracture along ethnicities. Well, the Hebrews are not, they're getting more than us. So it's obviously a racial thing. It's obviously an ethnicity thing. And so they are fracturing as a people. When the church began to divide on these lines, the apostles immediately addressed it by delegating the problem to seven men that the church selected. These delegated not, they delegated not because it was not important. They delegated it because it was important. Somebody needed to touch this issue. And verse 5 tells us that the church approved of this decision. So who did they select? Look there at the names. Verse 5, it says they selected Stephen. They selected Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. What's the significance of these names? They're Greek names. They're Hellenist names. They're not Hebrew people, right? So what we see here in a Hebrew-majority church is they selected people from the minority to meet those needs. They gave them the keys of the kingdom, if you will, and says, here's a need for us as a church. Meet that need. Take care of this need. So the deacons were shock absorbers, or I should say these seven were shock absorbers, not allowing the reverberation of The issues, not allowing the drama to rise, but instead responding in ways that promoted harmony and unity to the whole church. It's a beautiful thing. There's a second role that we see, and that is that of problem solver. The fact that the apostles do not tell the church what to select is fascinating in and of itself, but even more fascinating, perhaps, is that they don't tell them what to do. 
They don't give them the solution. All right, get seven men and tell them this is how they're to carry out the task. They just say, hey, select seven men. Here's the type of men you should be looking for. Here's what they should do in in the sense of solve the problem, but they don't give them the solution. They allow them to use their wisdom, use the following of the Holy Spirit to meet those needs. And so we see here that deacons should have their propensity to solve problems. They should be able to spot problems. They should then, when they see a problem, when it's identified, should want to safeguard the unity of the church by creating a solution to fix it. Deacons are problem solvers. They're not problem causers. And the local church, I've seen it both ways. But I'm not speaking of Redland, okay? I've been around the block a time or two. I've been a part of a number of churches. And I've seen it both ways. Deacons are problem solvers, not problem causers. They don't allow the the reverberation of conflict to hit them, and they're like, oh, let's send that on out. No, they absorb that conflict. They absorb those issues and that drama, and they work to solve it, thus bringing unity and harmony to the local church. For what reason? Here's the effect. When we think about the work of deacons or diaconal work, technically is what it's referred to, it's oftentimes quiet. It's behind the scenes. You know, you don't see deacons all the time. In our church, a lot of times, the, it's not always the case because we don't have just deacons that serve in the offering, but many of our deacons would serve in the offering. The other time that you would see our uh, deacons in the life of our church is uh, when we do the Lord's Supper, at least pre-COVID, our deacons would be up here and, and they would serve the Lord's Supper with me and pass the elements and all that stuff. That's about the only time you see our deacons in a upfront and public way. But most of the time, diaconal work is behind the scenes. It, it's, it's quiet work. It's, it, it's um, non-public type of work. But even in that, that doesn't mean that it's not uh, important. In fact, we would say it's profound. I want you to look at verse 7. Here's where we see the profoundness of the work of deacons. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Question. Why did the gospel continue to flourish in this church in Jerusalem? Was it because the apostles were such eloquent eloquent preachers? Somewhat. Peter could preach. Peter could could do well. Uh, we know later that Paul and uh, Apollos were great orators. But specifically here in Acts chapter 6, when it says that it continued to increase and all these priests were coming to the faith, why, why did it happen? What allowed for it? The answer is deacons, or I should say these seven men who later would, would foreshadow what would become deacons. They're the ones who set the precedent. Those are the ones who provided the opportunity for the gospel to advance. That's the effect here. Gospel advancement. Deacons may largely work to meet physical and administrative needs, but according to what we see in verse 7, their work is part of the larger gospel work. It is a glorious effect that they come alongside and serve the el- alongside the elders and the leadership of our church, all for the advancement of the gospel. You see, public ministry is impossible without private service. If the seven men had not freed the apostles up to focus on preaching and prayer, then the gospel would not have advanced. It would have been addition, not multiplication. Why? Because the apostles could only do so much. 
Uh, the elders in our church today at Redline can only do so much. The staff team can only do so much. So we need a division of labor so that more things can be done. So that more fires, if you will, can be put out. So that others can focus on what is their priority. Gospel advancement is what we see taking place here in this early church. Laying out the roles that would later become deacons. Aren't you thankful for deacons? Aren't you thankful for their ministry? The way they serve the body of Christ? When we think about deacons, you know, I started with what do you picture when you hear the word deacon and lay out some scenarios. Some of those are good. Maybe some of those are not so good. But what we see in this passage is that deacons are God's gift to the church because they are God's gift as shock absorbers. They're God's gift as problem solvers. And through their service, unity is preserved. Unity is is celebrated. Unity is seen because the gospel is advanced. So as we restructure, as we redeploy as a church, the ministry of deacons, they're going to continue to be a blessing to our church, which means we're a blessing to our church community. But when we think of diaconal work, is it only for those who are quote-unquote deacons? No. Are we not all called to serve? I want you to listen to a verse, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. Peter says this, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Anybody as a follower of Jesus have a gift that God's given you? The answer is yes. And so Peter, what he's telling us here is, you don't have to have a title of quote-unquote deacon or elder to serve the body of Christ. All of us should be serving. All of us should be doing some element of diaconal work in the life of the New Testament local church. And so we're to use them to serve the Lord for his glory, for the advancement of his gospel, to the betterment of God's people. So we need to do that right here in our local church. You can do that. I'm just going to give you a couple ways. There's many, but a couple I want you to to hear this morning. You can use your gifts to serve the Lord in our worship ministry right here at Red Lane Baptist Church. I know a guy that's sitting on the front right here who would welcome you with open arms and maybe a kiss on the cheek. That's a little strong, right? No no kiss. The Bible says greet each other with a holy kiss. (laughs) <laughs> I don't kiss. <laughs> I hug to the side, um, but he'll greet you. I, I'm making light of that, but I'm serious. Man, we had great music this morning. What, what's the purpose of music as we come into worship? It's to focus our attention on the Lord. Use your giftedness to help us to, to lead people into the worship and adoration of God. You say, I don't know how to sing. He, he can help you. I, I don't know really how to play an instrument that well. He can help you. Equipping the saints for the work of ministry. That's what we're to do here. You say, I I can't do that. Well, maybe you can serve in our tech team. Well, I don't know much about computers. We can help you learn that. I I got one of my daughters up there this morning, and she's helping with the slides on our live stream. You can do anything if you just say yes to it. Use your gifts for that. You you can serve in our hospitality team. Can you smile? Can you say, good morning, thank you for coming. Glad to see you here at Red Lane Baptist Church. You can serve in our hospitality team. Me say, well, I have a little bit of ability to, to teach, man. Find a place in our student ministry, our children's ministry, our adult ministry. Plug in there and serve the body of Christ. Use your gifts to serve the Lord and to serve people. Are you serving today? And if so, where are you serving? This passage ends with a number of the disciples increasing. This gospel advancement is taking place. 
You see, people were hearing the gospel. People were recognizing their sinfulness. People were repenting and turning to Jesus by faith. There's a good chance this morning as we close up that there's somebody maybe watching us online or sitting here in the room that you need to take the first step, and that is recognize your sinfulness and turn to Jesus. And so as we move to a time of response, here's two things I want you to consider. As a follower of Jesus, where can I serve the Lord in his church? Maybe you're serving the Lord in some capacity right now. Great. What else can you do? How can you fine-tune those skills and, and your service to the Lord? Second thing would be, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, and the first thing for you to do is to do what they were doing here in Acts chapter 6, hearing the gospel, believing by faith, and coming to Jesus. Where are you at this morning? As we talk about deacons, it always comes back to the gospel. What are we doing with it, and how is it influencing our own personal lives?